Our scripture, reader, scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. And this can be found on page 5 in your pew Bible. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, and with those verses, the story of Noah and the flood begins. It's probably one of the best known stories in, in Genesis, which we've been studying now for the past couple of months, and it's probably one of the best known stories in the Bible. Um, but what is this story really about? Because in many ways, it's a, it's a really hard narrative, isn't it? God deciding to sort of uncreate, to blot out all the creation, which we just watched him speak into existence just a few chapters ago. And these are sort of, um, you know, maybe three or so ways that Christians along the way have kind of dealt with that story and, and sort of the, the difficulty of that story. And one of the ways is to turn it into a children's story. It's kind of like kids ignore the mass casualty part of the flood story and, and just focus on, on the animals. I mean, right, kids love boats and kids love animals. So it's like a floating zoo. This is a great kid story. Um, just, yeah, don't focus on the mass casualties happening outside of the boat. Uh, the other way is to sort of, that just goes out emphasizing the, the wrath of God against all of us as terrible humans, that the human beings are awful, and that God was completely justified in wiping everyone out, and, and he still is, and he, thank goodness he promised he wouldn't do it again, but, but he could, he, he has the right to, so look out. Or there's something that kind of goes like this where we say, you know, the God in the Old Testament, he's just kind of angry and upset. He does things like the flood. But what we should really focus on now is, is Jesus in the New Testament. Um, so you just kind of, you know, the, this moment of, yeah, we just really need to focus on him um, and, and not look at what's happening in the Old Testament anymore or not take that as seriously. But none of these do justice to what's really happening in the flood story. So when you slow down and read it carefully, it raises a much deeper question for us, and that is this. How do we relate to the God who sends the flood on the earth? How do we relate to this God who's revealed to us in these chapters of Genesis? What's it saying about who he is and how we as people should relate to him? We're going to make three observations about this as we move through the text this morning. And as we do, I just want you to remember one thing as we kind of focus on this. You just kind of take one thing away, jot one thing down this morning. It's just that life comes through walking with God. That life comes through walking with God. Again, as we look at the story this morning, we're going to see three key realities that we have to embrace if we're going to relate rightly to the God who's revealed in these chapters. And the author of Genesis has arranged the material in chapters 3 through 11 to show this, this downward spiral 
that began back in Genesis chapter 3. Things go from bad to worse to unthinkably evil to a little bit of a spark of hope and then back to kind of terrible again at the end of chapter 11. And the spiral began when Adam and Eve rejected God in the garden back in Genesis chapter 3. Rather than trusting God to provide good for them, to define good and evil for them, they tried to seize good on their own, only to discover that there is no good on their own. There is no good on their own apart from God. You cannot find goodness apart from Him. And it was the worst day. But things only get worse from that point on. We saw it last week, brother kills brother, violence begins to multiply. You keep reading in chapter four and and men begin to take multiple wives contrary to God's design. People begin to boast of the violence that they have committed against one another, killing others. It's all at the end of Genesis chapter four. Take a look and, and read it this week if you haven't. It's like you're walking into a cave It kind of has a gentle slope down and you're walking into this cave and the further in you go, it gets darker and darker and darker until finally you turn a corner and all of a sudden you're in the pitch black and you can't see the entrance to the cave anymore. There is no more light. Everything is dark. That's the moment that we come to in Genesis chapter 6. It's all darkness now. Just listen again to how the author describes it in verses 5 and 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness, or, or that word evil, you can translate evil, of man was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. What we see is that the, the, the wickedness, the evil of the human heart, right, in, in both cases, it's the same exact word from early in the account, the knowledge of the good and evil. They choose, try to choose good on their own, and they only end up with evil, and now evil is what is reigns. And trying to seize their good on their own, they, they end up with evil. So their hearts are filled with only evil all the time, and now God's heart is filled with grief and regret. And this is not some kind of hot-tempered tyrant. This is a broken-hearted king who's determined to bring justice. And this is our first insight into how we relate to the God that the Bible reveals for us here. You have to know that there is a limit to his patience. You have to know that there is a limit to his patience This is not a God who is reactionary. He's feeling, he's looking deeply at his creation. This is not what he wanted or what he intended, this darkness that is spread over the earth. This is is not what he intended for his creation, which is really different than the other flood narratives in ancient literature because there are other cultures that have flood stories like this. If you've taken a a, a kind of an ancient literature class or a Bible's literature class, maybe you've read some of these or seen some of these other flood accounts out there which is what you would expect if this event was a historical event, that there would be a memory of that event in many different cultures. But the Bible presents it as history, and Jesus speaks about it as a historical event in Matthew 24. We'll look at that a little bit later on. But in those other narratives about this kind of major flood that happens, the reason that God sends the flood is not because people have become so 
so wicked or so evil in their hearts, but rather it's something like one of the most famous ones is this, that the, the people on earth have gotten too loud. They keep interrupting the gods' sleep. They keep waking them up. And so gods, the gods send floods and there's a, a hero who, who sort of comes and, and rescues people through a boat and kind of out of the, the, the wrath that the gods have sent down because they are being too loud. But the biblical story couldn't be more different. God has demonstrated his patience and his kindness again and again, and yet people continue to turn away over and over and over again. It's all darkness. It's all evil all the time. And while they are cryptic and and we don't fully understand all that they mean, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6 give us a sense of how bad it's gotten. A sense of why God in this moment acts so dramatically. So take a look. Again, these are tough verses to understand. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and the daughters and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, and how you understand what that means is, is key, and there's lots of different understands. The sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wise for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. We don't know who they were exactly. And afterwards, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them, they were powerful men of old, the famous men. And again, these, these verses, we aren't entirely sure what's happening here, but there's, there's really kind of two basic options to interpret these verses. One, to understand that the sons of God refer to angels or spiritual beings who sort of have transgressed their limits, taken on human bodies, and are spreading evil throughout the world. The Bible always presents that there is a, a cosmic spiritual dimension to evil. It's never just human evil. There's a cosmic rebellion. Or you can understand the sons of God referring to kings or rulers who are sort of amassing a, a harems of women around them and perpetuating injustice and evil rule over the earth. But, but either way, the result is the same. A massive amount of evil is multiplying exponentially. And if God doesn't do something, his intention, his good intention and plan for creation is going to disappear. Something dramatic must happen. His patience is beginning to run out. I remember when I was in high school, um, we didn't, my parents were, were cool. They didn't give us a, a set curfew that you always had to be home at a certain time. They, they actually said, you know, just tell us when you're going to be home and then be home by that time. You know, so if you, school night, you know, I'll be home at 9.30 or, oh, we're going to go see a movie together as friends. It'll be, you know, 11 o'clock when we get home. But the key was just that you came home when you said you were going to be home. Now, this was before, I didn't have a cell phone as a high school student. This was kind of before, and it's hard to imagine a life without cell phones, but was, I didn't have a cell phone. So sometimes if you were like stuck in the theater and you didn't want to call a payphone or whatever, there was a number of times, there was a season where I was consistently late. For my own self-imposed, this is when I said I would be home. And the patience was beginning to run thin. And finally, it ran out. I remember one night getting home really late, a lot later than I said I was going to be. And I was just hoping that my parents had fallen asleep and that they wouldn't know exactly when I had gotten home, right? But I found my dad actually there sitting on the couch. And when I walked through the door, he just, he didn't say anything. Uh, at first, he just walked over with his hand like this. And I kind of said, what? And he's like, just 
your keys go here. I'm going to keep those, your car keys, for a season. Uh, now, my, my, my patience has run out. And that's what we see in this moment, that God's patience has run out in Genesis. And how is he going to respond? Well, there's two things to keep in mind here. First, in the biblical story, while it is true that God's patience has run out, he is much more patient than, than most of us are. In fact, the chief complaint against God in the Bible is not that he's too quick to judge, but that actually he is too slow, that he's way too patient. If you read through the Psalms, people are constantly crying out, God, why have you not acted justice yet? How long, O oh Lord, how long are you going to wait to do this? So actually the biggest complaint in the Bible against God is that he's too patient, that he's not quick enough to judge. And then second, though, it is true that there comes a time when God says enough is enough. This is where we have to understand, though, too, that God's wrath is, is not some kind of uncontrolled explosion of anger where God just all of a sudden sort of snaps, but rather it is his settled opposition to all that would seek to destroy his good creation. God will not let evil triumph over his good creation. God's goodness demands that he be just. Indeed, it's actually only the truth that God will be judge in the end that actually keeps and allows human beings to, to not take revenge into their own hands. Miroslav Volf, a Yale theologian who witnessed the horrors of the Bosnian conflict, writes this. He says, violence thrives today secretly nourished by a belief that God refuses to take the sword. He says, it takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is the result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. The Bible makes it clear that, that every one of us as human beings, you, me, every one of us is on the wrong side of the story. That everyone deserves the flood of judgment that is coming. And, and Jesus says this is still coming. The, the second coming affirms this. He says in Matthew chapter 24, he goes back to this moment. Jesus points back to this moment. And he says, for in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They did not know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. And this is why the sort of move to say, well, we just need to not focus on the, the God of the Old Testament as though he were somehow different. We just need to focus on Jesus in the New Testament doesn't work because Jesus is, is as clear, in fact, even more clear in many cases than the Old Testament on the fact that God will come, that he will be judged, that he will set things right. So the question that this raises for us this morning is where in, in our lives, where in your life are you walking away from God, trying to find the good life apart from him? Now, I see it in my, in my own life, in, in the constant draw to, to sort of live beyond my means, to if I could just stretch to get that one more thing, that one more project done, that, that, then I'd be happy. 
I, I see it in, in my temper flaring when, when a three-year-old defies my will. There's something about a toddler disobeying that can bring out an anger that you just didn't even know was inside of you, right? I, I see it in my unwillingness to share what I've been so generously given. I see it in my failure to trust God to, to take care of my life. It just works out in, in worry and anxiety and joylessness. The Bible makes it clear that at some point, God is going to say enough is enough, and he will act to set things right. The dilemma is that on my own, I am always choosing the wrong side, I, that, I, that I desire the wrong things, that I want the wrong things, that so often I love the wrong things. There is a limit to God's patience. But thankfully, that's not all we learn in this story. So let's keep going. Because this is where we meet Noah. We've descended down into the darkness of that cave. The narrator has brought us from Genesis 3 deep into the darkness of this cave. And all hope seems to be gone. But then we read this sentence. Verse 8. But Noah. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And it's like striking a match in the darkness of that cave. And there's a sudden little illumination but Noah found favor. God shows faith. It's, it's the Hebrew word for grace. God shows favor, grace, blessing to Noah. This has been his plan all along to bless his human creatures. Noah found favor with God. In the midst of all the darkness, all the violence, God comes to Noah and he shows him favor and Noah responds. Noah responds to God's grace. I can only imagine what it must have been like to live in that world of violence and, and it's gotten so bad that God has decided to destroy it all and start over. But even in the midst of that, God is going to preserve, he's going to protect, he's going to provide because this is what he always does. He picks one person, one family, Noah's family, and he provides an ark. God says, Noah, judgment is coming but I'm going to provide an ark for you and your family and for the animals. And, and he gives them detailed blueprints of exactly what this ark is to look like and how they are to follow these in every single detail. And this is the, the second insight that we gain relating to the, the God of the flood, that yes, his patience is limited, it's true, but he always provides an ark. He always provides an ark. And, and this week, I was, I was just stunned. I was taken aback again as I read this story about who Noah is. And the life that he lived before God. Because look at how he's described in verse 9. It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And then this is the key descriptor. And Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. You can hear the echoes of the garden there. Right? How did God relate to Adam and Eve in the garden? He came and he walked with them in the garden. Noah walked with God. And you see this theme of, of walking with God. It begins to build even in chapter 5. Now, chapter 5 is one of those chapters in your Bible where you get to Genesis chapter 5 and you just kind of skim over because it's one of those genealogies. It's just a bunch of names. But chapter 5, it's, it's a little bit different than even the other genealogies, these other lists of names that you find in the book of Genesis because instead of it just saying, 
and so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and on and on and on, it actually records the death of each person. Most of the genealogies don't do that. It says, and so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and he died. Over and over and over again. It's this metronome of, of, of death that just ticks down through the whole genealogy. The author is showing us we live east of Eden. We live in the place where death reigns, except for one person in that genealogy. We don't really know much about him. His name's Enoch. But he doesn't die. His death isn't recorded. It just says that he walked with God. He walked with God and he was no more. Only Enoch escapes death. Only Noah and his family survived the flood. Do you see what the author is showing us? That life is found in walking with God. Do you want to escape death? Live a life of walking with God. Life is found in relationship with him. It's found in trusting and obeying and loving the God who made you. Life is found when you respond to God's grace with faith and trust and obedience. And and this is what you discover in in Noah's life throughout the whole account, that Noah shows grace and favor. God shows that to, to Noah's face, grace and favor. And then Noah responds by believing God's word. God tells him there's going to be a flood. Nothing like that has ever happened yet. It seems crazy. And yet, how does Noah respond? Noah believes God. This is the cornerstone of how every human being relates to God. To believe what he has said. To believe his promise. Noah takes him at his word. He believes and he obeys. He believes and he obeys. That is the cadence of a life that walks with God. Grace, belief, obedience. Grace, belief, obedience. It's the cadence of a life that walks with God. And you see that in the life of Noah. The author takes pains to, to point that out to us all along this account. Uh, in verse 22, he gets all the description of how this ark is to be built and says, Noah did this. He did it all that the Lord commanded him. Again, the reason that these instructions are recorded in such detail for us in the Bible of the, the length and the breadth and all this stuff about how the ark looks, it's not just so that we could sort of imagine what it looked like or, or build a replica of it today but that we see the care that Noah did to obey every detail of instruction of God down to the the, the very measurements. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded. And then God tells him to go into the ark, to bring all the animals in. Which, by the way, bringing all the animals into the ark, that had to be quite a process. Uh, I'm a big fan of the far side. I love how Gary Larson imagines this. I think I've got a, a cartoon of that picture. So what it says up there is, like, listen up, we're going to do this alphabetically. And then we had to blur out what the zebra's thought was there. Uh, But again, the author, his emphasis isn't on, on the process of how are we going to get all the animals into the, the ark. It's the fact that Noah obeys and does it. Chapter 7, verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Grace, belief, faith, obedience. You see it again in, in verse 15. Once they're all there, they went into the ark, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those entered male and female of all flesh, went in as the Lord commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. 
grace, faith, obedience. And, and the narrative, the author condenses all this down for us, but this would have taken a really long time for Noah to build the ark. Now, not a long time, not like a few months, but, but probably multiple years for him to build this thing. Years and years of grace, faith, obedience. And then the flood comes, and Noah and his family are on the ark for, for 370 days, 370 days on this floating zoo together. And then the narrative tells us that God remembered Noah. Grace. God remembered Noah. And Noah remains on the ark until God tells him to leave. Read back through those. We don't have time to look into detail, but read. there's lots of moments where, where Noah, I mean, they're eager, but he waits for God to call him off the ark. There's this grace of the remembrance, and then he waits. He remains until it tells him to leave. There's faith in God's provision. And then chapter 8, verse 15, then, Noah, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark. And so Noah went out, obedience. There's just author just takes such care to show us how Noah responds again and again to God's commands with obedience. And his grace and his mercy and his tenderness and his love, God always provides an ark. He always provides an ark. Will you go in? Will you take the provision that he's given? Are you walking with him? Because this is how you relate to the God who's revealed in these chapters. You respond to his grace by believing what he says and then doing what he says. It's as simple and as hard as that. It's as simple and as hard as that to believe what God has said, to believe his promise, and then to follow him, to do what he calls us to do. This is how God always rescues people from from Genesis chapter 6 all the way through the end of the story. This is how you receive God's rescue, to believe his promise, to receive his grace. Faith is the key ingredient. And look at how the New Testament connects together Enoch, this really obscure figure we don't know much about, and Noah together. And at the centerpiece of it is, is faith. This belief in what God has said. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Then verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And then right on to Noah, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Faith is the bridge that connects God's grace and, and our response of obedience to that grace. Without faith, it's impossible to believe him. A life of walking before God is one of a cadence of grace, faith, obedience. That is what it is to walk with God. That is where life is, is, is found. Have you responded to his grace? Have you believed him? Are you obeying him? Are you walking with him? 
And I'm not in asking that question, are you walking with him? Not just simply asking the question, sort of, do you believe God and enjoy coming to church a few times a month and, and reading the Bible when you maybe you feel down or depressed? But I'm, I'm asking the bigger question that is, are you walking before God? Are you walking with God in every aspect of your life? Not, not just here at church on Sunday or at Wednesday at youth group, but every day of the week. Do you walk before God when you're at school? When you're working to meet a deadline for work? With how you browse the internet? With when you're coaching your kids or watching them play sports? With when you're setting your budget as a family? When, you, when you're speaking to your spouse? Do you, do you walk before God when no one else is watching? Because believing God and doing what he says is always countercultural, by the way. It's always countercultural. And it will often look foolish to those who are on the outside. Noah certainly looked foolish. But to those who walk with God and find life, they find it in this continual cadence of grace, faith, obedience. There is a limit to evil. God will not be patient forever, and yet he will always provide an ark. He always does. But how? Because in the end, we see that Noah was evil too. We're not going to have time to go there this morning, but you get to the end of Noah's story, and he blows it big time. So how can God just overlook that corruption? How can God overlook Noah's evil even at the end of his life? He doesn't finish well. How can God do this? this, And this is the great tension that animates the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of Christianity. How can God be just and also have mercy? And this brings us to the final thing we learn about relating to the God of the flood. And that is that he always remembers his promise. God remembered Noah and he makes a promise. He makes a promise that he will never forget. And it's the foundation of the grace that he shows is this promise. God makes a covenant with Noah. Now, in in most of the covenants of the Bible, there are two parties that sort of make this covenant together and make these agreements and obligations. But here, God simply makes a promise never to destroy the earth again with a flood. The sign of that covenant is a rainbow. Every time you see a rainbow, we see, and we saw one here just the other day in Kansas City, it was incredible. It's a reminder of God's promise, of his grace, of his mercy. Respond to him in faith. Take action and do what he says. But how can God make a promise like this? A promise not to destroy and yet still be just. How can there always be an ark and God still be just? Well, the answer is that there always is an ark except for one person didn't get one. Jesus. Instead of an ark, he got a cross. And on the cross, he experienced the flood of God's judgment that rightly belonged to me. He got the cross so I could get an ark to receive forgiveness so that the cross now becomes not the place that overflows in judgment for me, but the place that overflows with a flood of mercy to me and to you and to everyone who would respond to God's grace with faith and trust. Will you walk with him and find life in him today? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you 
Thank you that you have made this incredible provision for us. That you have rescued us. That you offer us your grace. Lord, would you help us to respond to you in faith and obedience in all of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a community, as a congregation, we celebrate each week together here at Brookside the, the, the extension of that grace to us in the celebration of communion. It's a reminder of God's unmerited favor, his grace, his gift to us, his forgiveness that he offers. And so we gather every single week as we hear the word proclaimed and then we celebrate the gospel enacted for us in the meal of communion. So if you're newer here with us this morning, let me just offer a few instructions on how we celebrate communion together. But before I do that, also I want you to know we always have people available near the sound booth back here to pray with you every single Sunday. And so there's something going on in your life uh, that you'd like prayer for, maybe something that came up in the message, or you just, you're in a, a moment where you'd love someone to pray with you. Um, you can make your way there, and someone would love to do that with you. So we have four communion stations around the room. There's two stations in the back on either side and then two here on the front on either side. Just make your way to the station that's nearest to you. Gather in groups of five or six or seven folks around the server. Take a piece of the bread, dip it into the juice. And then when everyone in your group has done that, then eat together in that moment. And you don't have to be a formal member of our church to do this with us. If you have responded to the gift of God's grace in faith, even if you did that for the first time, even here this morning, come and receive and celebrate with us. If you're newer with us, if you came with a family member or a friend, or you just happened to wander in this morning and you say, I, I'm not sure if I understand all this Christianity stuff yet, I'm not sure I'm comfortable doing this yet, that's okay. Um, we're so glad that you're here with us and just invite you to use this time to reflect on God's gift of grace, his promise to you. Well, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And the same way after supper, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus calls us, invites us, commands us to do this in remembrance of him. So in a moment, the servers will come forward and then come to